0: Uh, This morning, we're excited that we have Harriet Congdon, who's a member of our congregation and our teaching team that is going to be sharing uh, one of the trickiest passages in all of Ephesians, one that we knew very much we were going to be talking about when we started it. And so would you welcome this morning, Harriet Congdon. It's been a while since I've been up here, as far as giving a full-blown teaching. Uh, I, I figured I was about a year and a half, so uh, maybe I'm a little nervous. But that's okay. <laughs> I'll probably get back into the swing of things here. But um, yeah, tricky is probably a mild term. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, pretty intense. <laughs> so I want to um, <clears throat> I want you to know that I support what, you know uh, what Kurt was saying about if you're feeling triggered because this passage may trigger some of you. Uh, um, and so with this, that on top of what's happened this week, yes, please feel free to take a break, to leave if you need to. I, I'm not going to take it personally. So you do what you need to do for self-care, okay? Is that a deal? All right. <laughs> okay, so Ephesians 5, um, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. I'm just going to read the whole thing right now, off, right off the bat. Um, they're known as the New Testament codes. So... Let me get, I'm actually got my Bible here this morning. So it's going to be on the screen for you as well. So let me just read it uh, in one sitting here. Verse 21, chapter 5. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. The body of which he is the savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind yes so that she may be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies he loves his wife he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ha- ever hates his own body but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it just as Christ does for the church because we are members of his body For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven. With him, there is no partiality. Okay, phew. (laughs) this is a tough passage. So... Right off the bat, we're going to be entering this ancient world of um, slavery, of traditional norms of gender and uh, heterosexual marriage. And I'm going to just state the obvious. This is not our world today. And it's certainly not um, the, the community that we have here. Okay, So I want to <clears throat> apologize ahead of time, because I'm going to need to use binary language to explain Paul's thinking. Okay. Um, but be assured that while we're exploring this um ancient world we're not going to land here okay so i'm just telling you up front we're not going to land here so how i approach this passage um, has been influenced a lot by this book that a group of us are going through called how the bible actually works by peter Enns. and i want to warn you that deconstructing this passage is going to get a little bit messy Um, but i'm going to lean hard into what Enns suggest as the main goal of reading the Bible and actually what Paul says, just a few verses before this passage I read. So let me, let me read those verses right now. You'll get the idea of what I'm trying to get at. <clears throat> Verse 15 of chapter 5, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I am hoping that on the other side of our time this morning, we will find wisdom, okay? Not rules, but wisdom. And hopefully in the process, we'll also find God. This passage um, is hard to read. It's been weaponized, been used against um, uh, and marginalized singles, especially as the church has often just set up marriage as the end goal for everyone. Um, It's kept women in abusive marriages. Just this last Sunday, I got a phone call from a dear friend on the East Coast, and she's given me permission to share this part of her story. But uh, she, uh, her pastor, um, after meeting with her husband, she called to tell me that she was divorcing her, um, her husband. And so her pastor, who had been meeting with her husband for a little bit, um, decided to come over and offer some counsel. So he came to their home. And he basically told her that their marital issues were easily fixed. And what he said was that all she needed to do was submit to her husband and give him the sex he wanted. Yeah, I mean, that's still being said today. I was was floored. I was angry. (laughs) Okay, And um, and, and the thing is, he didn't even bother asking why she wasn't or um, what was going on in her life because she was not she was like living on about 4 hours of sleep a day because their newborn was not latching and constantly hungry 24/7 she was exhausted plus the fact that the issues that they had in the marriage were much more complicated than being about sex okay she felt betrayed by her pastor and her uh, pastor definitely betrayed his own toxic patriarchy This passage has also done damage to women within patriarchal churches. Um, I know because back when John and I were part of a conservative evangelical church, I thought that our home actually modeled an ideal biblical home. I was a stay-at-home mom. I was homeschooling our three boys. John made all the income and every day he would lead prayer around the table at mealtime and he led family devotions with our boys every single night. And so I was pretty rattled when this guy from the church came up to me and accused me of wearing the pants in the family. Now, maybe it was because I'm kind of an opinionated person, uh, maybe because I exhibit some leadership skills and I like to teach the Bible. <laughs> I kind of hit another low point when I decided to, to look up what my name meant. And uh, Harriet means <laughs> ruler of the home. I, I thought in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, I am doomed. I am doomed if I stay in this church. So uh, yeah, th- this passage has done a lot of damage. So of all the passages in the Bible, this one is one that's really high on my list of passages to deconstruct and dismantle as a weapon, okay? Um, so let's get started. <laughs> Hang in. <laughs> okay, stay with me. Uh, I want to start by explaining um, a couple of things about first-century Roman culture, okay? It's important to understand to set the context for Ephesians. And I'm um, <clears throat> borrowing from an article written by Shi Min Liu, who wrote about um, the Roman household codes for the egalitarian magazine, The Priscilla Paper. Some of you might be familiar with that. Um, but her, her um, thoughts were very helpful in understanding the history behind the, the household codes. First of all, these household codes were in place long before Paul came on the scene. Okay, They had their origins in Greek philosophy, specifically Plato and his student Aristotle, who lived like 300 years before Paul. Um, two of their concepts are important to understand, uh, Ephesians 5. These two guys had analyzed the human soul, and they concluded that the best part, the strongest part of the human soul, was rationality. They also concluded that it was men who had more rationality than anyone else. Therefore, they had the right to rule in society. Those with less, like women, children, and slaves, uh, were to be subservient. In his writings called Politics, uh, Aristotle uh, brought up a second point, and that was that the city-state was dependent on order and harmony in the home in order to maintain that in the city-state. He was like one of the first to connect the family to politics structurally um, and state that the household the home was the basic unit of the city-state now some of you from evangelical background, backgrounds will sound like okay that sounds familiar right so um, later on about the time that jesus was born caesar augustus who was the first roman emperor he kind of he latched on to aristotle's hierarchy and um, he passed then laws, actual laws that governed the home. Um, He restricted women's rights, he uh, regulated their lifestyle, even down to laws about what modesty should look like. He also linked a man's honor to how well the husband managed his home, how well he maintained order in the home. That was a, a demonstration of honor, that was an indication of honor for that man. Then churches came along, and um, these households became the central meeting place for the churches. And because the household bore the weight of order and harmony in the city-state, that meant that the churches came under the scrutiny of the empire. They did not want churches disrupting the order they had established already. Uh, and so, as a church planner, Paul um, definitely felt the impact of that scrutiny as he wrote and ministered in those areas. Okay, so besides the, the origins of household codes, the second um, context that I want to describe or explain is the reality of an honor-shame culture. And we've talked about honor-shame a lot at Cascade, but I want to kind of kind of go through it again and highlight some of the important features of it because it plays into the text. Most of the world, um, according to many, uh, believe that it's honor-shame culture. In fact, 80% of the world is honor-shame culture, predominantly, okay? 20% is what they call innocence-guilt culture. It's often framed as a difference between a Western mindset that's predominantly um, innocence-guilt and an Eastern mindset that's honor-shame. But there's not really a clear split between the two in any culture because both elements can be present in any culture, it's just that one tends to be predominant. Okay, does that make sense. So um, it's also described as being um, either individualistic or communal. Um, In Western culture what's normal is established by rules and laws, but in Eastern what's established as normal is set by expectations and ideals that are agreed upon by the whole culture or or community. When rules are violated in innocence uh, guilt culture, it usually leads to feelings of personal guilt. But when a violation of expectation or ideals uh, comes into play, it brings shame to the whole community, to the whole group, okay? A person in uh, innocence guilt culture will say, I made a mistake, or I am not right, or I did the right thing. In honor-shame, it's I am a mistake, or I'm not valued, or I did the honorable thing. In the question of social debt, and this means um, uh, what do I owe society? Okay, That's social debt. Values of independence are set up against interdependence, choice against obligation. And you'll see this. <laughs> I see this played out in conversations that we've had about vaccinations, because you hear innocence, guilt language when independence and choice are given as reasons to not vaccinate. And then you hear honor shame language when when uh, people talk about it, taking the vaccine for the common good. Okay, do you see then how that plays in? And so you have this clashing of of mindsets because the priorities are different and we miss, we, we don't understand that dynamic, and we and misunderstand each other. The Bible contains innocence, guilt, language, but it's predominantly, I mean really predominantly, honor-shame culture, okay? So what held the Roman uh, social structure together was this common understanding of what was honorable or what was shameful, and it's within this framework that Paul is writing his letter. So let's talk about Paul. I want to read this quote from Lou's article that helps us to understand Paul in Ephesians. She said this, authors of New Testament codes, household codes, did not aim to demolish the social structure, but to define for the first century, the first Christian communities, the proper relationships among the members of the communities. The first purpose was to live out the gospel message and convey that message to the larger society. Okay. So Paul's priority was the witness of the gospel, as he wrote. Now, I personally, I don't feel a need to either um, defend Paul or dismiss him. Um, he was a human, just like us, trying to figure out what it meant to live out this faith in God, in Christ, faithfully within his, his context, within his time and culture. I don't view Paul as having the final word on practical applications, but I do see him as a person who's in this transitional period. Paul started the the, that process of translating the gospel into practical situations and we have that same responsibility today to continue that translation of the gospel into what into our own context. Paul wasn't afraid to challenge uh, or critique any systems just like Kirk talked about last week. But this passage today is a really good example of a transitional movement forward. Paul doesn't totally undo the existing patriarchy, but he does subvert it. And so that's what I want to talk about. Let's take a look at how he subverted the Roman household codes. From the beginning... Uh, sorry if, I'm, uh, if I have to cough or clear my throat. I was just diagnosed with cough variant asthma, <laughs> so <clears throat> don't be nervous. I tested Friday uh, negative for COVID, all right? <laughs> uh, I, I've been stressed out because of it, but anyway, I'm okay. I'm not contagious. Okay, so from the beginning of his letter, he did subvert um, uh, human power structures. In chapter one, verses 19 through 21, he shifts the nature of power from the power of domination to the power of the resurre- resurrection. In chapter two, verse five, when he says that the that, that same resurrection power raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly places, he's describing a power with, not a power over. It's a power that's inclusive and it's leveling. Paul also spends a lot of time um, in Ephesians talking about this new identity of being in Christ. That phrase in Christ, he repeats like 14 times in Ephesians. It's a big deal talking about the new identity. He saw all believers as having the same value having the same um, identity of being in Christ, whether you were male or female, uh, child or parent, slave or master. In an indirect way, then, Paul is (laughs) subverting Aristotle's hierarchy, okay, who said, who, who prioritized rationality. And Paul's saying, no, it's your identity in Christ, and we all have it. This power then and the shared power and the shared identity is what shaped um, Paul's concept of mutual submission that uh, we read in verse 21. Mutual submission was now the new rubric (laughs) for the three relationships that would be found in the home. And you can see this dynamic of mutual submission playing out and at work with his use of honor shame language in each of these three uh, sections. Okay, so let me uh, just kind of go over them real quickly. In marriage, mutual submission means husbands submit by loving their wives sacrificially, placing wives before themselves, and caring for them like they do their own bodies. And wives submit by respecting their husbands. In honor-shame cultures, love is respect, and respect is love. It's nonsense <laughs> to say that wives primarily desire love and, and husbands uh, uh, primarily demand or want uh, respect. And some of you are going to know that I'm referring to this book that was written like 17 years ago that became very popular <laughs> in uh, marriage counseling called Love and Respect. And if you look it up, look up the subtitle because it's a lot worse than the way I described it. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, do not get this book. <laughs> Um, In parenting, mutual submission looks like children honoring parents through obedience and fathers honoring children by not provoking them to anger. With household slaves, mutual submission means slaves obeying and serving their masters well, but also the masters are told to stop threatening your slaves. So the definition of mutual submission is mutual and reciprocal honor. Big difference between submission being based on power. This connection between submission and honor then, it leaves the door open for future efforts to dismantle patriarchy and slavery as power structures. Okay, Paul leaves that door open. So what about the husband being the head? this is a this is the part that gets really messy okay um there's been a lot of scholarly ink that's been spilled over this particular greek word um and paul actually makes it more complicated because he uses it three times head the greek word for head three times in ephesians and in every in those three times all three have three they have three different meanings okay so um the pro-patriarchy people will insist that head means authority over. And that's supported by how Paul uses it in chapter one when he talks about Christ being above all rule, um, authority, power, and dominion. And then he follows that with, and Christ is head over the church, his body. So it sounds like like authority language. In uh, others that argue against hierarchy insist that the word head means source, like the headwaters of a river. source of the river. That would be supported by Paul's second use in chapter 4, where he says, we must grow up into Christ, who is the head or source of growth and health for the whole body. And then there are those, the third category of those that say, no, head doesn't mean authority. It doesn't mean source. All Paul's doing is arguing for unity in marriage and in the body. It's the whole uh, the picture of the the body needing the head to stay attached to the body in order for it to live and thrive. It's not about uh, authority; it's about attachment. And that would make sense in light of the fact that the whole book of Ephesians has this major theme of unity. Okay, it's there. The bottom line is the literal meaning of head is a literal head. <laughs> okay. That's the simplest thing. What you have to do is you have to look at the context because it's being used in a metaphor and that's where it gets tricky. So here's my uh, take on Paul's use of head in this particular passage of household codes. I might be wrong, but I actually see all three concepts, these meanings embedded in our text. When you read it, you can hear the language of authority. You can hear the language of source and the language of unity, which means it's complicated to figure out what the heck Paul is talking about. But the ambiguity, we don't have to be afraid of of it because ambiguity and his use of that term should be a red flag to us. It should clue us in that he's not trying to set out a, a model of male headship for the home. That's not his intent. What should give us a clue is the amount of space that he takes to write about Christ and the church, Christ and his body. Something that he's doing throughout this whole, this whole letter, okay? And as he addresses wives and husbands, I think Paul is having a spiritual moment that he is actually overwhelmed with the, what he calls the great mystery. Mystery is one of his favorite words to use. It's this relationship between Christ and the church, and to him, it's a great mystery. And it's totally appropriate to talk about authority, source, and unity when you're talking about Christ. For Paul, this new communal experience of being with Christ is a mystery that's so deep, it's hard to express in words to be totally understood. You can't. But in our passage, I think he's just... He's working hard to demystify it, if that's a word, demystify. But he's trying to do the best he can with the cultural language and the metaphors that are available to him. He saw God's kingdom as a new community with new expectations and ideals where relationships could be reimagined. And if necessary, those social structures could be subverted, especially if they didn't line up with the ideals in God's kingdom. You know, today, uh, I think more than ever, we need to have a new metaphor for church (laughs) to reimagine what it means to be together doing community like Paul did. In these last few years, the mystery of Christ in the church has been uh, dealt a pretty serious blow. Um, It's hard. It's tough to feel any awe when it comes to the broader church. But I don't want to give up. And um, you guys here at Cascade, you give me hope. You give me a lot of hope because I think there's something beautiful and mysterious that is, that is emerging from this chaos that we're feeling and seeing. It's beautiful. I'd love it if we could find a new metaphor for that mystery, something that uh, means what we want our church to look like. Um, I came across this quote several years ago, and I really love it. I have no idea where it came from. I tried looking for it, and I couldn't find it, okay? But I love, the, I love this quote. Therapy is the art of changing a person's controlling metaphor. Therapy is the art of changing a person's controlling metaphor. You know, I did some research. I found out there is actually a thing called metaphor therapy. It actually is a thing out there. Um, it's not as well-known, but there is therapy uh, named that. It's the psychotherapy model. But I do think we need to change our controlling metaphor. And I, I for, But first of all, what I want to do is suggest some metaphors that we should rule out, okay? Um, I'm not sure marriage is a good one anymore for us in our present context. It has a lot of baggage and pain um, and that it carries for us, okay? So I, I'm, I'm okay with throwing out marriage as a metaphor. Um, I experienced years ago in this conservative church of how powerful a controlling metaphor can be. I was on staff, and the pastor would often share with me his metaphor for church, and it was an assembly line factory. Yeah, you're reacting exactly like I was like, oh, no. (laughs) It was awful, and and it played out because he created a really toxic leadership structure there. I had to flee because of the abuse that I experienced, spiritual abuse that I experienced there. I would also probably uh, stay away from metaphors connected to business, um, sports, or military consumerism and uh, competition and dominance are not great values for the church okay so let's stay away from that how many kids are in here I better not okay I was gonna <laughs> tell you about another metaphor that I'll leave those so up you could ask me later I found out a a, a TED talk that is kinda of funny of how what he suggests never mind. I gotta stop <laughs> okay um, okay so what are some metaphors that are helpful I still think the body is still helpful. I think those in the medical field would relate to that, and I do. I think the p- picture of a body is beautiful, and in any of these metaphors, as long as we keep the metaphor as far as any kind of, um, yeah, of, of Christ being the center of it, rather than a person, of a, a gender, or anything anybody else, okay, but as, as long as Christ is the, the center of that metaphor, I think the body is still good. Um, Brina Bard, <laughs> we got together and talked, and, and I don't know if you know her, but she's written, she writes graphic um, novels, and she suggested, as we were talking about it, a film crew. And I thought, oh, that's a cool idea, metaphor of this film crew getting together with all their skills to create art, to create film that does influence culture. Um, my husband, John, plays the cello, and for him, an orchestra is really meaningful. Um, Kurt suggested a friend's giving which I had no clue was a thing. Okay, that was kind of new to me, and it's been out for several years now. But a friend's getting the experience of this adopted family of friends that get together to share a meal around the table, and I think that's beautiful. Um, Don't laugh, but for me, it's this scene from the movie Avatar I love sci-fi. I really like sci-fi, and I don't know. I this is. I rarely watch movies more than once. I've seen this like several multiple times because I just I just love this movie, and and this is picture of connection as the Na'vi people gathered together around the tree of souls to pray, and to me that feels like church. Um, I don't have time. I oh, I do have some time. I talk fast. <laughs> OK. Um, gosh, has any metaphors come to your, your head or, or thoughts that, uh, if it not it's OK. Um, but if you have any metaphors that you even think of right now that are meaningful to you that could be a metaphor for us today in our context. Does anybody have one at all? Yeah. A theater ensemble, yes, yes, a theater ensemble for sure. So that's great. Yes. Mm-hmm. I I think that's why the Avatar thing is, you know, this connection to the ground, to earth. But yeah, going out in nature and seeing how nature itself—they talk about trees being connected in their roots and how. Yeah, I think that's a great metaphor. Yeah, if you, if you, if something pops up in your thoughts this week, um, yes, it, yeah, you know what? Would you email me? Because <laughs> I'd love to hear them. It's Harriet Congdon at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear if any other metaphors pop up for you, okay? Um, I want to close our time uh, with prayer. And this is a poem I mean, this is a prayer that I actually wrote several years ago. We, we, I had a chance to talk about Ephesians 5 like three years ago. I don't, some of you may have been here when I did that. And um, I've kind of kind of gone through a different direction with this passages. I think it means something different to me now than it did back then. Um, but this prayer I wrote and, and kind of reworked it a little bit was inspired by Mary Oliver's poem, Mysteries, Yes. It's a beautiful poem. You can look it up. But would you pray with me as I pray this prayer? God, may we be a people who can live in the mystery of being together and in Christ, who delight in the beauty and treasure of the person sitting next to us, who are willing to touch another human hand, connect, and create strong bonds. God, may we be a people who are comfortable with paradoxes and ambiguities and not having answers, who can move through the chaos and find an order shaped by wisdom, love, and justice, who reimagine and then work for a flourishing world and creation for our children and grandchildren. God, may we be a people who look and laugh with astonishment and bow our heads in worship, amen. Harriet, something I love that you said is that you preached on this a couple of years ago, but it changed how you see that. And I feel like that's like exactly how I want to read scripture. Right? I want to have preached on something and feel confident of what's moving and working within that scripture and study, come back, reimagine, keep journeying. Because I think that's like that is like a faith experience right there. So thank you for sharing that piece of it. I really appreciate it.